Hey, New City, my name is Nate Bush. Good to be the lead pastor here at New City. Glad you are joining us. Quick question, how, how are you feeling <laughs> right now? Uh, I bet you didn't think it could get worse than a global pandemic. Uh, newsflash, it's gotten worse. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty bad out there if you've been paying attention. I don't uh, like living in the climate we're in. I really don't. I don't think anybody really likes tension. No one really likes to live in tension. But I have been doing my best over the last few days to embrace the tension. In fact, this has been a lifetime struggle for me, is embracing particularly the, the racial tension that we're all living through. Uh, recently, as a, a few months ago, I picked up the book Wide Awake. This is before uh, George Floyd was killed. Uh, this is before the, the protest in the streets. Um, and I was just reading, trying to understand. And in the earlier pages of the book, uh, Daniel Hill writes, white culture is very real. In fact, when white culture comes into contact with other cultures, it almost always wins. I've been wrestling with that, just wrestling with that. How is that true? In what ways is it true? Am I a participant in what is white culture? How do other cultures lose out? And I have a feeling that a lot of us just don't want to live in this tension. We don't want to have these kind of conversations. And I have a feeling that many in American society just want all the tension to go away. Like we don't want to do that kind of work and do that kind of thinking. We just want the tension to go away. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. There have been moments in the last week where I've been like, I just want this. I just want this tension to go away. I do think our black and brown brothers and sisters feel that, that desire for the tension to go away. And they feel like there are some in American society who want them to go away because they're the source of the tension. And I've gone back and I've been thinking about this in, through the lens of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, in the letter from the Birmingham jail, which is a letter I read every year uh, because I think it's worthy of our attention. Dr. King writes, first I must confess that over the last few years I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan-er, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. I want to read that again because this is where I've been wrestling. The white moderate, he says, prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. I do think there are a lot of people in American society who sincerely believe themselves not to be racist. But I also think there are some people who are in their sincerity believing that this is not a problem. Can I just say sincerity is not enough? This is what I'm learning. Like even in my comments, even in my, even in my opposition to racism, my sincerity is not enough. We need to walk into the tension so that we can, we can do the hard work of understanding the other. 
In other words, we can't be so desperate to get order back that we try to resolve the tension. And by resolving the tension, what we're really saying is we want you to stand over there and stop raising the tension when you're wanting to be heard. And, and listening to the voice of the other is a challenge. One of the black, black leaders that I have been growing in my affection for is Jordan Rice. And Jordan and I know each other from church planting circles. He planted a church with the, uh, the Orchard Group in New York City. Uh, Jordan Rice recently tweeted, the white evangelical playbook. Uh, he said, some have asked him to write this playbook, so he wrote this playbook and sent it out on Twitter. Uh, step one, say do nothing about racism. Step two, wait for an international headline. Step three, have a conversation. Step four, get celebrated for said bold conversation. Step five, do a token demonstration like hire a black person. Step six, wait for applause. Step seven, repeat as necessary. In the, the tweet thread, Jordan Rice writes, don't worry about neat statements condemning racism. They're not bad, but they are inherently shallow. He says, lead your people with honesty, contrition, that it took you so long or this long to start talking about this in a meaningful way. And he encourages us towards vulnerability. I do think that the conversation that needs to be had is not one that is separate from tension. It's a conversation that needs to be had in the, in the place of tension. And it's not one that we can cover up with lots of sentimental and even sincere posts on social media and expect that one day it's going to go away. It's not gone away in the past. It's not going to go away without intentional action. And there are many things to be outraged about right now. And you are probably outraged. I'm not outraged about one of the things that you're outraged about. Look, there are plenty of things to be outraged about right now. But outrage that does not lead to reconciliation is unproductive outrage. We, we certainly should be outraged about what has happened and what is happening in the world around us, but that outrage should be productive in its focus and should lead towards reconciliation. So where do you wear your stress right now? Because I know we're all wearing the stress. Uh, we're wearing it in our bodies. In preparation for this series, I, I read Alistair Grove's uh, book, Untangling Emotions. In the book, uh, the author writes, your emotions don't happen in the abstract. They happen in your body. Responding with emotion is something that literally causes a physical reaction in your skin, your brain, and your blood. Have you ever stopped to reflect on just how odd and, and how nearly magical this is? That we can change the flow of another person's blood and brain chemistry by using mere syllables is a testimony to how profoundly God has made us creatures of meaning, beings whose lives and loves matter. He says our bodies are the messengers of our souls. And they cry aloud over and over and over again that we, we care deeply about the purpose, the outcome, the experiences of our lives. In this sense, your body acts as a billboard displaying your emotions to you and the world, whether you want it to or not. Your body clearly worries that if it doesn't capture your attention, you might not listen to your heart's messages. So where are you carrying your emotions right now? 
God built our bodies these way, this way. I mean, to, to care about purpose and mission and the value of life. And when your, your heart is racing and your body is tense, here's my encouragement to you. Let God's word be the filter for every thought, for every social media post, and every conversation. Let God's word be the filter. See, the word of God is not a political prop. The word of God is the power of God for salvation. Listen to the testimony of the Apostle Paul. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And isn't it interesting here how he includes, how it reconciles even races. God says in his word that you are broken. You are broken, fundamentally broken. The good news is that God saves broken people because broken people are all there is. And in Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to save broken people. In this, the Psalms that we are studying today, in Psalm 16, David writes, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Paul says in Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. I want to encourage you as a person who is broken and hopefully redeemed by Jesus. And if you're, let me just say it this way. If you're a Christian person, if you receive salvation, you are never speaking from a place of personal righteousness, even if you've received Christ imparted righteousness. You, you are never speaking from a position of someone who has in their own merit a sinless life. Like you are a sinner, you're broken. And we are speaking from that place every time we're speaking. Also, we are speaking from a place humbled because we received Christ's imparted righteousness, which is why when we started New City, we put billboards and banners up everywhere. There are no perfect people allowed because we want to make sure that New City was a community that just knew that we are not perfect. We don't have it all together, but Christ does, and he has been perfect for us. So God says in his word that you're broken. God also says in his word that the foundational kingdom ethic is love. The foundational kingdom ethic is love. Love God, love the neighbor. In fact, you can't, you can't rightly apply the law of God without loving God and loving the neighbor. Love is selfless, others-centered, and sacrificial in its nature. And so I want you to see Matthew 20, 25, when Jesus is instructing his Apostles on the ethics of the kingdom. What it, let me just say it in terms of setup. The apostles were looking around and seeing that Jesus' following was growing and it was time to structure, it was time to organize. They're looking ahead. They're saying, you know what? There's going to be some hierarchy. It's probably going to look like the hierarchies of the world around us. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So do you see how the political leaders of our day rule over people? Do you see how the political leaders of our day are oppressive in their leadership of people? This is what he's drawing attention to. And then he says in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. 
Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see the nature of love. Self-sacrificial, others-centered. Can I just challenge you, friend, for a second? If your anger impedes your love, especially the love of your perceived enemies, it is counterproductive and opposed to the gospel. Jesus instructed us in Luke 6. I say to you, who hear, so are you listening? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. In the words of Dr. King, if we do eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, we will be a blind and toothless nation. There is a kingdom ethic that is founded on love. You're broken. The foundational kingdom ethic is love. God, God's love is unencumbered by racial prejudice. Romans 2.11, for God shows no partiality. You should know that a church living out of her true identity will always be a multi-ethnic church. Always, if she's living out her true identity. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and I looked, and I saw the redeemed church of God, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every, listen, nation, and from all the tribes and peoples and language standing before the throne and singing the song of the Lamb. But you should also know as much as this is the ideal of God's kingdom, how he's going to bring together every tongue, tribe, and nation, that from its infancy, racism was a part of the church. Racism was present in the church even in her infancy. And the Apostle Paul records it for our benefit in Galatians 2.11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him. To his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So a political party came into power in the fellowship that made, that made Peter feel uncomfortable sitting with the Gentiles, and he withdrew. And Paul said, I, I opposed him because he stood condemned already because he was living in contradiction to the kingdom ethic. So God says, you're broken. The foundational kingdom ethic is love. God's love is unencumbered by racial prejudice. And hear me, church, the head of the church is not any politician or political party. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus and Jesus alone. We just studied this in Colossians 1:18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Like that he might be preeminent in everything. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is the head of the church and he is preeminent over everything. So here's the real, you know, here's the real question. Who has a louder voice in your life right now? Is it Jesus or an earth-bound political power or a news outlet? Who's getting more of your affection, your time? Who's, who's steering your life effort and work? Who's stirring you up to move? I do want to encourage you, church, to speak up. Let your voice be heard. 
But first, pray and evaluate your voice. Is it informed by what God has already said? If it is, speak it. But speak it for the purpose of reconciliation. Speak it for the purpose of bringing people together. Speak it for the purpose of, <laughs> of, of the ministry of reconciliation that God has given you. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Never forget that God reconciled you to himself through the bloody death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Jesus not only gave us the ministry of reconciliation, he showed us how it works. It's going to come through and always going to come through self-sacrificial love. Listen, the world right now is shaken. And, and people are, feel, are feeling it deep inside. The emotional temperature is at an all-time high. And when, when our life is shaken, I can tell you, only Jesus can be our refuge. That is the entire theme of Psalm 16. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken, he says in verse 8. In verse 1, he says, David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He says, I'm taking refuge in you, so I will not be shaken because the world is too easily shaken. And when Jesus becomes your refuge, you will feel it in your body. You'll feel it in your body. In Psalm 16:8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me, Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, listen, listen to what he's saying. The Lord's before me. He's at my right hand. I'm not going to be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. It's hard to catch it in this translation, but I want you to hear what he's saying. Robert Atler, in his book on the Psalms, translates the verse this way. So my heart rejoices, and my pulse, it beats with joy, and my whole body abides secure. He's saying, my, my whole body's experiencing the joy of knowing that my God is in control, and that he's good, and he's my refuge. I feel it. Our emotional lives are a part of our Imago Dei. It's a part of how God made us. It's part of our image bearing of him. Again, from Untangling Emotions, the book, he says, emotions are an essential way we bear God's image. God expresses emotions, and he designed us to express emotions too. But the heart of all of their roles, emotions flow out of what we love, and at the same time, they actually help us to love the right things, God and other people. So where do you turn when life is shaken and its fragility felt? Well, we've got to turn to Jesus. But, but we also can turn to his church and ought to be able to turn to his church. Preserve me, O God, the psalmist writes, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. It's you, Lord, and the saints. That's where I find my refuge. And we will never find the solution we really need separate from Jesus and his church. And I can tell you, 
that America is desperately looking for solutions right now. Desperately looking for solutions. Your friends are looking for solutions right now. People are begging the church for solutions. And so I don't say this, I'm not being opportunistic with this, but I, I do believe this to be true. It has never been better to be in the hope business. And if you're a Christian, you're in the hope business. It has never been better to be in the hope business because people need hope now more than they've ever needed hope. And our hope is not in the power of politicians. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in the power of Jesus, our King. And so in verse 4, he says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows of those who run after other things for their salvation, they'll multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lip, he says. To take it a step further, the emotional state of the one who takes refuge in God is gladness. Listen to what he says in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad because I take refuge in you. The emotional state of those who run after false gods is sorrow. The sorrows, he says in verse 4, are multiplied. Why are the sorrows multiplied? Well, when you're looking for earthbound solutions, you, you, are, you are destined to fail. This is, a, this is a terrible line in the sermon. It really is a terrible line in the sermon, but it is true. Uh, the world will eventually take, every, take away from you everything you love. Eventually, the world will take away from you everything you love. It's one of the reasons why we're so desperate. It's because we know it. The people you love will die. The things you love are fading away. You're fading away. The world is under a curse. It's the curse of sin. It's killing things. And it puts us in places of desperation. And so we look for solutions everywhere. We run after them. All kinds of solutions everywhere. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. By, by it, he, he's referring to beauty and goodness and truth. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. And if good things are mistaken for the things itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, bringing sorrow upon sorrow. And we need to be careful that we're not looking for temporary solutions to eternal problems. In verse 5, David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. My destiny is secure in you. In other words, the lines have fallen. The, the lines of the property or my inheritance have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. C.S. Lewis says, We can chase after these things. We can chase after solutions, temporary solutions, but they will fail you. Not only will they fail you, sometimes these temporary solutions, like even our temporary sort of earthbound political solutions, the, the ones that we hunger for, they, they, can, they can fool us into thinking that they are the ultimate solution when they're not. 
He does say, he says, they're not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell, says C.S. Lewis? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness. We are in need of the magic only God can perform to break us free from running after false gods that only bring us sorrow multiplied. Worldliness is turning any created thing, is turning to any created thing as your ultimate solution for your emotional pain. Let me say that again. Worldliness is turning to any created thing as your ultimate solution for your emotional pain. God settles the heart. And God settles the heart through his instruction. And David writes, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So what is the instruction our heart needs? Well, I chose Psalm 16 weeks ago when we were looking at this series because verses 8 to 11 of Psalm 16 is the closing text that Peter used in his first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost. This is his text. Because the pandemic of sin, the pandemic of sin has infected and is killing everything we love. But sin and death have been defeated by Jesus. And so Peter says, I want you to see this text and the promise of Jesus and to know this, know the promise of Jesus and what he's at work doing. Peter says in Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. It's my favorite line. Because it was not possible, possible for him to be held by it. Death couldn't hold him. And I think with that in mind, Peter says, thinking of death not holding him, Jesus knows the path to life. And if you want the path to life, you're, you're going to have to come to know Jesus. For David says, this is our text, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
not only did God make known to Jesus the path of life, that Jesus is, in fact, is our path to life. He is the path. And so in Acts 2.29, Peter continues, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And so he's saying, look at the text. (laughs) David is speaking here as a prophet. He's in the tomb (laughs) to this day. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we call, we are all witnesses. So the big question that's raised is what do we do? How how are we to respond? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children, which is a reference to your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And for all who are far off, which is a reference to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Everyone whom the Lord, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Humanity is fundamentally broken. If it wasn't true, Jesus wouldn't had to, would not have left heaven to live a perfect life for you. Like, like a substitutionary life, he lived a life you couldn't have lived because you're under the curse of sin. If you could have lived it, he wouldn't have come. But he, but he did because you couldn't and he loves you. And then he died on the cross for the penalty of your sin. He was buried in a grave and he raised from that grave because death couldn't hold him. And he overcame your sin and death, which offered you forgiveness. And the text we just read said that he calls people to himself. And friend, he may be calling you today. He may be calling you to himself. He may be calling you again to himself. If there is an upside to the trauma we're feeling collectively as a culture, 
is that more humans are becoming aware of the brokenness of humanity. I mean, more of us are just looking around going, this is jacked up. Something's got to change. That's the first step to receiving the gospel because it is. Jesus loves this broken world and he loved it enough to come and die for it. And, And I don't say this opportunistically. I believe this to be true. It is a good time to be in the hope and reconciliation business. If you've experienced having been an enemy of God, now being reconciled to him through the death of Jesus, you know something of the cost of reconciliation also and how it happens through self-sacrifice, through seeing the other, going to the other, living alongside the other, dwelling with them. And if there's one thing I know that my black brothers and sisters need right now, is they need the, the presence of Jesus through you and with you. I, I feel like this week, just in terms of my own personal feelings, a, a race to wokeness. And a lot of people just sort of racing to their social media to make sure they can affirm to everybody that they're not racist. I do think that the temperature eventually will subside. This is, I don't know, this is not a sermon point, but it's just, I can't be the only one that feeling that we're at a, we're at a pivotal point in history. And I think that the Holy Spirit's saying to me that we need to respond with the gospel as Jesus' kingdom people. We're going to host some conversations on racial reconciliation, um, but they're not going to be like one-offs to feel good about ourselves. I'm going to listen to my friend Jordan Rice. Uh, I'm really looking for solutions that are long-term, inside-of-me solutions. I'm a broken person. I'm a sinner. Jesus saved. I, I am saved from the power of sin, but I haven't, you know, I haven't yet been saved from the presence of sin. I still make mistakes, and I need to have that full awareness as I walk into any kind of reconciliation effort. And so I hope that we walk through this with courage and humility together as a church, confessing Jesus as our Lord, following his example, and living in light of the kingdom ethic. We end our services with prayer, communion, and giving. We have a prayer room open, a Zoom room, that you can jump into if you're watching live. We'd love for you to join us. We've been having some powerful prayers. Last week, we had some very powerful prayers just lamenting the, the conditions that we're in right now and praying with people who are, who are just shook because of what's going on in the world. Uh, I, for one, am taking right now the posture of listening. Listening to God, but also listening to my black brothers and sisters and going, what do I do? And before I even preached this message, I called a black sister and said, I need to know. What do you think? And I preached the first half of my message because I need to know. What do you think? That's our posture right now. It's a posture of listening. Listening in prayer to God, listening to others, that informs how we pray to God on, be, 
on behalf of our brothers and sisters. Communion is on your own. Break the bread, take the cup. But as you break the body of Jesus, recognize uh, <laughs> recognize what Jesus did. How he brought how he brought together humanity through his brokenness. Give, we'd love for you to give. I got an update coming out about Be Good News. You may have seen it already. It's so good uh, what God's doing at New City. Keep being generous. We will keep um, spending money in kingdom-minded ways. I can promise you that. For prayer today, some, uh, I want to read from Ephesians 2.14 and just make this our confession. So I've taken Ephesians 2.14. I just wrote a confession that we can say together. And uh, it's short. Jesus, we confess you are our peace. You have made us all one. You have broken down in your flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Amen. Love you, church. God bless.